welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is a recording from my Instagram live session on April 12th. And again, we've got some good questions here. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get into it. Right. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you're getting this or Instagram Live, this is from uh, April 12th, 2019. It's Friday. Uh, if you're just tuning in, make sure you go check out the latest YouTube video or the latest podcast in the future. We just posted the Melbourne Q&A. So if you haven't checked that out, go take a listen. It's like 75 minutes of educational gains. Uh, this will go up uh, Monday, so thanks for tuning in. I am Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. We're bringing modern medicine to strength conditioning, strength conditioning to modern medicine. We're going to try to answer some questions here. Uh, let's see other announcements. Austin Sarcopenia Lecture is on our YouTube channel as well. Go to Barbell Medicine on YouTube and uh, you can check that out. All right, let's see if we get into some questions. I'm just having some coffee before we go train here. Stephen Choi asks, new templates, CrossFit template, template soon. Yes, I have made it my mission to get these out ASAP. So I've been working tirelessly on them. I just want to really try to get all the bugs out of them. It's just Excel sometimes is unruly. So yeah, we have a bunch of new uh, templates coming, including a beginner's template, CrossFit template, some new hypertrophy templates, power building templates, advanced strength stuff. Um, and again, if you listen to the last Instagram live that I turned into a podcast, um, the idea is to kind of take the templates and then make it more streamlined. So you, we want everybody to come in through like the same, you know, or a similar channel, uh, into these programs. So if you've never trained before you do the beginner template, if you are coming back from a uh, injury and you've been away from regular training for a while, you do the beginner template, and, or, and if you've already done some sort of beginner training, then we would recommend going to something like the bridge. And then it, that all funnels into this sort of decision-making, you know, uh, point where you're like, all right, well, what do I want to do next? Do I want to focus on strength outcomes in for powerlifting or for strength lifting? Do I want to focus on conditioning like that? That's important to me. Um, you know, and so you might, if you were focused on strength you know, uh, and you wanted to really focus on your squat bench deadlift, you would do our powerlifting one template, for instance. Or right, if you wanted to focus on conditioning, maybe you would do an endurance template. And if you wanted a hybrid, maybe you would do the strongman template or the CrossFit template. That'd be a bridge, you know, kind of a, a hybrid between the strength and the conditioning um, sort of goals. And then if hypertrophy was really more of your jam, then maybe you do our hypertrophy template. Uh, or if you really want, you know, hey, I'm going to focus on the power lifts. Cause that's, uh, uh, but I still want to, you know, do some hypertrophy work. That'd be more of a power building kind of thing. I think that's reasonable. Maybe you do that template. So that's, that's the idea. Then we would just have multiple offerings at each step of the game, at each step of the game, uh, step of the way, step of the game, <laughs> step of the game, step of the way. I think that's what it is. Uh, and, uh, uh and then, um, we would, uh, basically be able to be with you um, through your training career, you know, and if you want a one-on-one coaching or group programming, then, you know, you could hop off and we'd have a reasonably good idea, like what you've been doing, what you're ready for. So that's, that's the idea. Okay. Let's see. Do you believe food should just be viewed as medicine 
or as fuel. I think food should be viewed as food. I mean, I, I, I know I don't not sure what you're getting at the question um, because it's not medicine, right? Like you can you everyone has to eat. Not everyone has to take medicine. You can alter nutrition habits and nutritional intake to treat certain diseases, uh, especially adjunctively. But many interventions that we make nutritionally to improve disease states, a, a lot of those, you know, aren't just a simple diet. It's not just a simple dietary change. This is like a medical nutrition therapy. In any event, I think, yeah, there's definitely benefits to changing nutrition for health um, it, 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 uh, with various diseases and various conditions. But I, I don't think that, oh, food is medicine. And I also think that relegating one of the most enjoyable experiences, you know, especially social experiences um, and cultural experiences that is eating and cooking and, you know, all that other stuff associated with it, just viewing it as fuel. I think, that, you know, you're missing, you're missing something there. So I don't know if I would take either extreme there. I would say food is food. Everyone's got to eat and, uh, you know, make further caveats from there. Let's see, Sebastian Contreras, would adding a set of arm work every week be a good option for arm growth progress? Um, this is actually a pretty good question. And to first answer your question directly, no, I don't think that's how I would do it. Um, when talking about hypertrophy or even like adding volume or adding fatigue or, add, you know, doing that to try to do this progressive overload thing, it doesn't, you don't need to do it weekly and it doesn't need to continue on forever. There's some point where you get, you're like, boom, I'm getting a good response here. And I wouldn't go above that level until you need to. Um, so for hypertrophy, you know, we don't have like normative sort of <laughs> on average four to six weeks is where it's going to, you know, peter out. But, you know, what I would do is start with two sets, you know, once or twice a week, you know, probably twice a week if it's, that's usually how I start people because it's a pretty low fatigue kind of, you know, for arm stuff in general, two, two sets done at like RP eight or nine set the reps between like 12 and 20, um, you know, give their, thereabouts. And again, at RP eight or nine, and then, uh, you're doing a, two sets twice a week. And I'd probably do that for like six weeks before adding another set. But, you know, once you start adding sets, you're, you, you're kind of going down this road where at some point you're going to be doing a lot of arm work, which is fine, but it's, and then you're just not going to get a good response to it. And so at that point, things like supersets and, you know, giant sets and drop sets and pre-fatigue and all that stuff comes into play. Or alternatively, you say, hey, I'm not going to focus on hypertrophy right now. I'm going to focus on displaying strength develop that I've developed over the past, you know, six months, for instance, and then you take, you know, a month or, or six weeks and you focus on just a heavy block, heavy training period. And you come back to the hypertrophy work a little later. That's, you know, one of the things we do here. Let's see. Hey, Jordan, where would you cut off adding volume for an advanced lifter? I mean, I guess this is kind of a, you know, this is similar to the last question. I don't necessarily know that there's a place that I would cut off volume like yeah, it's, it's, I guess the point I would stop adding volume is when people stop responding, stop responding. Uh, they didn't respond as well to it. And so I would, you know, if I'm just adding volume and people aren't getting better, I'm not, I don't know if I feel great about that. So provided it's at the right intensity, the right exercise selection, et cetera, you know, I think adding volume is reasonable, but uh, have to make sure all your other ducks are in a row too.
All right, let's see. Garrett asks, is there any rationale behind German volume training? That's 10 sets of 10 at 60% for hypertrophy. Uh, so German volume training is wholly made up. Um, there's, you know, there was no like German weightlifting coach. It was like, a you know, do 10 sets of 10. I've looked into this. Most people attribute this German volume training to Charles Poliquin. Um, that being said, 10 sets of 10 represents a lot of training volume. And so you might, you know, people who don't know that much about barbell medicine or me would say, well, you're a volume dude. You probably love that. And I think that misrepresents our stance on things. And then also I need to point out that for hypertrophy outcomes, you get the most growth, not when you're brutally sore, that just tells you that that what you just did over uh, basically you overreached, you exhausted your current recovery and uh, capabilities. And so instead of being able to divert resources towards growing new tissue and recovering, uh, sorry, instead of diverting your recovery resources to growing new tissue, you just have to like not, <laughs> not, uh, 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 hurt yourself anymore. So effectively we see that most people, when they do a hypertrophy program, um, the first few weeks, they actually don't see much growth, um, if it's new and it's a lot. And usually once they get used to it, then they see some growth, uh, after that, when things, they're not very sore and, uh, and whatever. So you get the most growth out of things that you can actually tolerate, 10 sets of 10 is more, that's more volume in a single session than I've ever programmed for anyone in my entire coaching career. And I don't think that I would ever recommend that much. Not to say that there's a, you know, that's a hard line. It's just like, why? The main tenets of hypertrophy are motor unit recruitment, range of motion, and total volume uh, that you're getting, mo you know, motor unit recruitment through the full range of motion or a, you know, big range of motion. So I can get the same result from doing a ton of volume, um, by doing, uh, heavier weights and less volume to a point. The, if you consider like two examples, so the one example is 10 sets of 10 at 60%. First set of 10, you're not getting much motor unit recruitment relative uh, to the maximal amount that you can actually recruit because it's not heavy enough. Um, second set, depending on how much rest you took, you're probably getting a little bit more because fatigue's building up. Third set, a little bit more. Maybe by the fourth or the fifth set, are you getting anywhere near like, you know, max volitional motor unit recruitment as long as you're not, as long as you're on short rest. And it's only for those last like two or three reps. So of those hundred reps, maybe the last two to three reps of each set from set five on are like, you could call them stimulating reps, if you will. So, you know, you might have gotten, you know, 10 to 15 stimulating reps out of that whole workout. Now, if you did, uh, four sets of six, for instance, at like 75%, um, you're getting more motor unit recruitment off the bat, probably the last two reps of each set from the get go, um, you know, or from the, on the first set, and then maybe a few more on the next set, it's probably going to be about equivalent. You know, at some point you're just getting the same amount of reps that are, uh, 
recruiting the motor units through the same a similar range of motion. Um, so you know these the numbers are just used for example you know uh, purposes. Uh, I would basically what I would try to do if you were trying to maximize hypertrophy. Most of your sets would be like RP7 to RP9. You wouldn't go to failure, but they wouldn't be like super light. But you can pick any intensity that you want to do as long as you're going to take those sets that high. You could do leg extensions with 30% of your 1RM leg extension and do, you know, sets of 50 and get a good hypertrophy response as long as you're willing to take it to near failure, not to failure. Um, and then from there, just total volume is going to be the, the driver. Um, it's like the range of motion is the same and everything else. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't do German volume training ever. Yeah. Yo, is there any difference between creatine pills and powder? Yes. One is a pill. One is a powder. <laughs> I mean, you're not looking so, so I, I'll answer this a little bit more in depth. So creatine monohydrate has very good absorption characteristics. When you look at this through the lens of science, you see that um, not a lot of it ends up being excreted into the urine. Not a lot of it ends up cyclizing into creatinine, which is, which you can measure on, um, uh, on a blood, uh, blood test. Some of it does, but not a lot of it, not as much as creatine, ethyl ester, creatine, other stuff, but creatine monohydrates really is absorbed very, very well. Um, you're not looking for this rapid sort of influx of creatine, like at a certain time before or after your workout, you're just looking to achieve higher levels of creatine phosphate storage in the, in the muscle, higher levels of creatine in the muscles. And that takes, you know, about a week anyway. So it doesn't matter when you take it during the day and then it, by extension, it doesn't matter if you're taking it by pill or by powder as far as like how fast that's getting into your system. As long as it's creatine monohydrate and it's dosed appropriately, then I think you're good. What are the pants that you usually wear while training like khaki ones? Uh, those are Lululemon ABC joggers. Very flattering. Your store still says, are you a novice? Do the LP. I'm guessing you're going to change that with the new templates. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fine. I don't think we're going to take a hard line. Like, you know, you should or shouldn't do this program because it's, you know, going to be bad for you. or It's not optimal. It's like the idea behind trying to find an optimal program for beginners it seems ridiculous to me, right? Because what you're, what you're doing by saying, I have to find this optimal program that gives me the optimal results. Okay. What you're saying is that getting the results faster, getting the results faster than if you did a different program is important. Getting there first is important. And that's only true if it provides you a significant advantage for an important period of time. Meaning that getting to a level of strength would have to afford you major advantages for a significant period of time where that actually meant something and for like a sporting outcome where you got paid a lot of money for like a, a health related concern or health related issue with, you know, a higher level of strength. 
performance on arbitrary lifts, you know, improved outcome. The deal is it, there's nothing like that exists in strength training. Everybody gets there eventually as long as they keep training. Most important factor for a beginner program, most important factor is getting it to comply with damn training. If they're not going to comply with the training, if they're not going to do it, that's the problem. You should enjoy your training, should find meaning in whatever you're doing in the pursuit of self-improvement. And yeah, you should like it and, you know, get the gym bug and have it be part of your life. It shouldn't be this like arduous slog that, you know, you're, you feel like you're going to war every time. It's not, it's training, dude. Like it's fine. And getting to a 315 back squat in the shortest period of time confers no advantage as long as you're going to keep training after that. Because the people who took a slower approach are going to get there too, as long as they keep training. And that's, you know, part of their genetic sort of in their genetic potential. And if they enjoyed their training and they built a bigger base of, you know, physical characteristics and all this other stuff, they're probably going to pass you in the long run. I don't care where you're at at three months or six months of training. I care where you're at at three years and six years of training, as long as you're still doing it. Wherever you ended your LP is meaningless to me. Yeah. So doing the LP is meaningless. I don't, I don't think we should put a bunch of stock in that. Yeah. What made you focus on powerlifting and not bodybuilding or strongman? Uh, I never felt like bodybuilding was accessible to me, to be honest. Like, I don't know. I, I don't have like this great shape, you know, like a crazy V taper thing. And I'm just, I'm kind of broad up top and then broad in the middle and like, and, uh, I, the reason I really started lifting weights low is cause, um, so I, I think I bench pressed a little bit in high school, like my senior year. Um, my buddy Corey was like on the state wrestling team. Right. And he was like, we should work out. We were, we were custodians. Yeah. So I actually had this really cool job in high school. We were, uh, uh janitors at our high school after class. And we would get paid. We were getting paid like way more than all of our other friends. And we never, we didn't have to drive to work. Right. And we, we just literally like swept the halls for a couple hours after school. We never worked weekends, never had to work nights, like, you know, night, actual night shifts or whatever. It was a pretty sweet deal. Uh, anyway, but so we would basically, you know, when he started working there, um, I got the job after work, we would just go into the weight room and, uh, I would just do whatever he did. And then I got bit by the bug and started getting into it. But that being said, I, I think that was like the last maybe year of high school. Um, and then I didn't really work out when I went to college my freshman year. And then I came back <clears throat> between the summer of my, fr my first and second year of college. And I dislocated my hip at a motorcycle race. Yeah, I got landed on, left femur popped out whatever. Uh, they went and reduced it and I'd never squatted at this point at all. But, uh, during like, you know, I remember the PT came to the house and she was like, Hey, uh, we need to get your hips stronger. And, uh, she was like, stand up off the couch. And I stood up and I sat back down. She's like, all right, you're going to do that. You know, sets of, I forget what number she said, but you're going to do this a couple times a day for this many reps or whatever. And I was like, Oh, like squats. So the next day I went into the, <laughs> <laughs> to the gym and I <laughs> tried to squat. I didn't know that you could squat with anything but plates on the bar. I didn't think you could squat the empty bar. It didn't make, I, I don't know why, but again, this is like 
what year is this? It's got to be 2003, you know? I don't know. The internet's around, but, you know, there's nothing on the internet from training. So anyway, <laughs> I put 135 on the bar and I uh, went down to the bottom. I fell over because it's too heavy. Also, my hip like kind of hurt. So in any event, uh, but when I transferred that, that was like that summer, I kind of played around with squats a little bit. I still didn't know what I was doing. I didn't deadlift. And then um, my when I got to school, I transferred schools to Truman State. Um a buddy of ours, Mike, basically taught me how to squat. I mean, whatever. It wasn't really that great, but uh, he helped me out. And then uh, I did sumo deadlifts. And uh, yeah, so that's how I got into it. And I init- I loved it. I was like, oh my gosh, you can lift this weight. That's so cool. Getting stronger is cool. But I never felt that way about like competing in bodybuilding. Like I think like most guys in my, you know, that I hung out with, we were like, wanted to get bigger, right? Yeah, let's get bigger. Let's, you know, get jacked or whatever. But it was for me, I had this, I really did enjoy adding weight to the bar more than I like. I never measured my biceps. I never measured, you know, how big my chest is or leg. I never measured any of that stuff. I didn't care as much as I wanted to like lift the most weight. So I always thought that was cool. And then strongman, again, it really wasn't accessible to me. I think if I would have trained, I mean, I trained at the rec center, at, uh, in college. And so if there was strongman stuff there, maybe that would be different. Maybe I would have got interested in that, but yeah, it never really seemed accessible to me. No one I knew did strongman stuff. And then, uh, I'm not very tall. I mean, I'm five eleven. you know, so it's not like people were recruiting me to like, Hey, you'd be good at strongman. Not, I'm not to say that you can't be good at strongman if you're not tall, just, in any event, no one was asking me to be <laughs> to do strongman, but though I got into powerlifting, I think just because I knew I needed to train given the the hip thing, and then um, my you know that's what was accessible, what was available to me. What's up, Jordan? Going out on a date tomorrow afternoon. I live in St. Louis. Should I take her to the art museum or the zoo? I mean, it's good weather. You got to go to the zoo. Also, this is just an aside. So I was just down in San Diego. Um, and we went to the San Diego Zoo. Now, I my, my whole life, so if you guys don't know, if you're listening to this, and you're like, dude, I was here for the training questions. Well, it's a little personal now. I'm going to slow it down. No. Uh, <laughs> my, my whole life um, in St. Louis uh, until I went off to medical school. But I thought that the St. Louis Zoo was legit, right? Like I thought – we've got all these animals. We've got like a train that runs around the outside of the deal. It's great. It's great. You know, but then I went to the San Diego zoo. Holy crap. Like it makes the St. Louis zoo look very pedestrian. I was very upset with myself for thinking like, Oh my gosh, the zoo that I used to go to is awesome. So anyway, if it's nice outside, I would go on, I would go on, uh, I would take go on a date to the uh, St. Louis zoo and then go to Ted Drew's afterwards. Pro tip. Yep. My left pec cramps up after maximal deadlifts. What do? I wouldn't do anything. Sometimes that happens. I've had that happen. I I always attribute it to like a pec minor, you know, especially on the underhand side. Um, I don't know why other than that muscle is likely isometrically contracting very hard during heavy deadlifts. But if you're saying that your left pec cramps up after maximal deadlifts, then I don't think it's a big deal. You're not, you shouldn't be deadlifting at maximal intensities all the time. So, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. 
John Lally. Hey, I'm a month into a herniated disc. All right. I'm lifting three times a week still, but nowhere near where I was a month ago. Any advice? I would keep going. Yeah. I mean, so herniated discs, depending on the nature of it, usually resolves uh, in a series of months after the injury. I forget the exact number uh, and what the exact percentage is. So I'm not going to mess those up and then put this on the internet for everyone to find out. Um, but yeah, a vast majority of herniated discs will so will you know reabsorb, and the worse they are, the better, the more chance that's likely, and symptoms tend to go away regardless. Um, so if you can train three times a week, that's good. You're already on the right track. I would expect your strength to improve rapidly as you tolerate more loading. Main thing is to not sensitize yourself. If you're having pain, um, you know I probably wouldn't necessarily push through that as long unless it's like it goes away. You know what I'm saying? If it gets worse during the set or if you're focused on it more, I would try to find a different movement, range of motion, different loading strategy, something like that, where you're not sensitized to it. So that way you just don't like drag this thing out. Let's see a few chapters into why zebras don't get ulcers. Great read so far. Oh, yeah. So this is like, okay, let's talk about book recommendations. So why zebras don't get ulcers is by Dr. Sapolsky. Great book. The dude's a primatologist. Uh, very smart guys up from Stanford. Um, he actually has writ, uh, wrote, uh, written a bunch of great books. So I like that book by him, Dr. Sapolsky, S-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y. Uh, he's also got like an evolutionary biology course that's on YouTube for free. If you're interested in that, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, his other book that books that I really like, uh, Monkey Love is pretty good, but my favorite is The Trouble with Testosterone and Other Biological Essays. His Behave book that just came out is pretty good too, but I would do The Trouble with Testosterone. Other cool books that I've recently read that I would recommend, uh, Bad Advice uh, by Dr. Paul Offit. I thought that was pretty good. Also his books, Pandora's Lab and um, uh, let's see, I forget his, his other one that I also read, but they're really great books um, by him. Um, and then Sports Gene, if you haven't read that, I think that's a good one by Epstein. He's got a new book coming out called Range. So I'm just getting you guys keyed up on this. I think those that's good book recommendations. Let's see. Do you use deadlift bars? I have in the past. I don't use them now. Uh, deadlift bars are 27 millimeters, usually a little longer in length than a standard power bar. They flex more before the, bar, the weights leave the floor. So... Uh, my rationale for using a deadlift bar is if you have a meet coming up where they're going to use a deadlift bar, then use a deadlift bar. If not, I wouldn't train with a deadlift bar. I see no advantages for using a deadlift bar. It's not necessarily an overload unless you get used to using the barbell because it is different. It feels different. And so if once you get used to it, you might be able to pull a little bit more than you otherwise would on a stri stiff bar, but it's not like it's immediate going to take a week or two or maybe longer. So the favorite, my favorite one that I've used, I don't know. The buddy caps one is not that great. Uh, the Texas bar is probably my favorite. I guess if I had to pick a deadlift bar, I don't think any of them are that great to be honest. I haven't, I've never used the rogue one yet. So let's see. J dub life and times asks when you see people saying something that just isn't true and you care about the person's well-being and want to help, how can you address it? I, yeah, no, I, I feel you on this one. I don't think that you can unless they ask you. Yeah. Like 
just think about it like this. If you said something and then you didn't ask for anybody else's opinion, you know, even if they're an expert, okay, but then somebody chimes in and says, no, that's wrong. Here's the deal. What are the odds that you'd be open to receiving that message? It's unlikely. And I mean, that's unfortunate. It's just, I feel like there's a human trait. Uh, the, the, uh, the Death of Expertise is another book that I recently read, I think I would recommend. So what to do about this? I think any way that you can start a conversation about the topic in a non-confrontational way is where I would go with that. And then um, if someone's open to hearing what you have to say, then you know you can talk about it. But if not, I save your resources. Let's see. Sutz Strong. Is direct arm work for powerlifters completely useless? Uh, no. Uh, like triceps are heavily involved in the bench press, for example. Um, I don't know that biceps work has any direct carryover to the squat or the deadlift to, uh, outside of maybe grip work in the deadlift. That being said, like there's nothing that's useless. It's just like does this thing add significant fatigue to my weekly training load without giving me, you know, any notable improvements? I don't know. You know, I, I think that most high level powerlifters do direct arm work or have at least at some point. And while that's not, you know, great evidence that arm work is super, super useful, I think I can make a very strong case for triceps work for powerlifters, which is direct arm work. So there you go. <clears throat> Let's see. Hans Vanderstack. Why are your programs so expensive? Well, I would actually counter that they are very inexpensive compared to other, what I view as competitors to our, uh, to our offerings that, but they're much, others are much shorter, like five weeks for like literally triple the price of what we paid. So I think I would just disagree. And while I am, uh, you know, aware that, you know, finances can be tough. We offer, we got a lot of free stuff on our website too. So like program wise, the bridge 1.0 is free. The general intermediate program is free. The peaking templates free, you know, any substantial evidence that probiotic supplementation is effective after using antibiotics? Uh, so it's important when asking a question like this. So when you're saying about like effective, like what do you mean by that? If you're saying like reduces risk of reinfection, for instance, no, there's no evidence there. If you're saying reduces the incidence of C. diff, <laughs> you know, which is an uh, infectious uh, complication of, of certain antibiotics or long-term uh, antibiotic use in susceptible populations. Um, no, not really. Uh, some folks will, in, with certain antibiotics in certain populations, if they're you know, treated with antibiotics for a long enough time, or again, certain agents just in general, um, some evidence that probiotics can reduce like diarrhea incidents. But other than that, yeah, you have to be very specific when you're asking a question like that. Otherwise, there's not really an answer. You can't just say yes or no, you know? Can explain why some say dietary fiber doesn't count as carbs or they use net carbs. 
is a gram of carb, not a gram of carb or a calorie, a calorie. There's like, that's a, there's a lot of things in there to unpack. I'm not sure why some people say dietary fiber doesn't count as carbohydrates. That's no uh, national or international organization who makes nutrition recommendations advises that. No nutritional text or biochemistry text that discusses nutrition talks about that. It's just made up uh, tomfoolery, and I would just reject that that is a thing. Yeah. So, and as far as a gram of carb, not a gram of carb, I I mean, <laughs> if you're asking, uh, do they all get converted to some sort of simple sugar in the small intestine uh, or the intestine period, I guess no, technically not. Uh, if it's fiber, it'll turn into a short chain fatty acid in the large intestine and then contribute to uh, a fuel source. So that's not, doesn't have the same fate, but in general, one non-fibrous carbohydrate is this, you know, is equivalent to another non-fibrous carbohydrate from a calorie standpoint. Um, and even fiber, a fibrous carb, although there's some difference in how much energy it takes to metabolize them. So that's, you know, but not not a lot, though. You know, you can't say a gram of fiber is free calories. That's not true. So Leah says, I'm pleased to see the plants are doing well. Well, this one, right, the ones on the wall, there's just not enough sunlight in here. The other ones I get to, like, put out on the deck for, uh, for photosynthesis purposes. But, yeah, we're trying to keep the plants alive. Trying to keep the plants alive. Alex Chevry says fiber doesn't get digested and absorbed, so it doesn't provide energy. Uh, all of those things are wrong. So fiber gets digested, fermented in the large intestine to a short chain fatty acid, and that gets used to provide to fuel certain metabolic processes. Boom. Pat Laughlin, I got vegan RX. It's tasty. Hey, that's cool. Happy to hear that. Hey, Doc, how's it going? Is there any evidence that strength training is specifically beneficial for ankylosing spondylitis? Also, would you recommend fish oil for it, as in rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, I have only seen a handful of studies on resistance training and ankylosing spondylitis. I don't know that I could reliably say that resistance training specifically makes ankylosing spondylitis better. I know that exercise tends to improve function and people do better with AS. Um, that's as far as I am confident in saying that not, I can't really comment on resistance training in particular. And as far as it, it, I don't think either of them alter the disease course, but I think people just do better, have better function. Uh, I would not recommend fish oil for ankylosing spondylitis. No. What would a single at eight represent in a hypertrophy block, different stimulus, strength display, post volume accumulation, I mean, it well, it always represents like a sort of benchmark for strength. So, which is can be useful if you're trying to determine like what load you should use to on a particular day based on your current performance level. So that's a one objective measure that you can use. Like, oh, I hit this weight. 
you know, for a single, my heavy single. So I'm going to use that to, to gauge what the rest of my loading should be. Also, if you're in a, a block where you're trying to figure out, am I getting stronger or not? You can use that to kind of see again, just gauge things. Yeah. Let's see about hypertrophy is mile reps better or more volume like three by 12 at RP eight. How do you progressively overload mile reps? I don't know if one's better than the other. They're different, but to achieve the same process. So like a mile rep, you just take, you're taking a weight that you could probably do for anywhere between, you know, 12 to 30 reps and you're taking it to almost failure. Um, that's called an activation set. Effectively, you're using intraset fatigue to drive motor unit recruitment. And then you do back offsets on short rest periods to maintain the sort of motor unit recruitment. Is that better than doing three sets of 12 where you don't get full motor unit recruitment until the last three or four reps? I, I don't know if one's better than another unless you, and you'd have to equate them on volume and all this other stuff. Um, for progressively overloading mile reps, you can add weight. You can add more back offsets. For instance, instead of doing one activation, you could do two activations. You do more sets afterwards. You do all sorts of stuff. Um, there really is no one way to do it. Jordan, do you think it is bad? Do you think it is a bad idea to do core work, abs and lower back isometric work before my actual workout that includes squats, deadlifts, etc.? I don't know if it's bad. I just think that pre-fatiguing your core trunk musculature uh, before you're asking them to do some serious work seems like a bad idea if the performance on that work is important. I think it compromises your ability to train, squat, deadlift, etc. doing that pre-fatigue, and I don't really see any benefit. So I guess to answer your question, I guess I do think it's bad, kind of. J-Dub, life and times, question number, I don't know what it is. <laughs> For physique outcomes, a physique looks better with shoulder pulled back. Will more horizontal pulling change the appearance of one's shoulder position? That all that's bullshit. Physique doesn't look better with the shoulder pulled any which way. Physique is subjective, and I think the only data I've read on this, people appear to rate other individuals to be more attractive if they're standing up relatively straight. It has nothing to do with this shoulder pulled back. That's I'm almost offended at that question. Almost <laughs> kidding. Uh, and so no more horizontal pulling will not fix a volitional um, sort of rounded shoulder sort of situation. People with rounded shoulders, it's a volitional thing. They can stand up, they can pull their shoulders back if they want. They just don't. That's volitional it has nothing to do with like muscle mass sort of situations. Jordan, how would you change programming for a deadlift only meet? And is there any point in doing singles for squats and benches? I mean, sure. If you're training and you're like 20 weeks out, you can't just specialize on the deadlift. Uh, I'd probably do less squatting. Like, uh, I, I would probably actually just, and I would deadlift first in the week. And, uh, you know, I don't know that you would really require a lot of special training um, maybe like the last four or five weeks, it'd be a little bit different with a little bit less squatting, a little bit more deadlifting. 
Um, and then benching, you know, yeah, I'd probably cut that, some of that down too. It's just, it doesn't really interfere that much with, uh, with the deadlift, but yeah, I think I would put deadlifts first. I'd switch squats to like a secondary movement. I don't know if I would remove all the singles from squats or, um, or bench. I could make an argument for maybe removing them from bench a little bit more, but you know, also depends how advanced a person is too. But yeah, I think I, I would, uh, I probably wouldn't change much until like four weeks out. Let's see. What do you do about clothes? I mean, Leah just makes all of my clothes. So no, I'm kidding. Uh, I actually don't, I mean, I don't have much prop, much difficulty finding clothing that fits me, I guess. Cause now I know like the brands that do fit. So Bonobos makes great pants that fit very well and then don't look, you know, very, uh, poorly <laughs> despite the fact that they fit. So Bonobos, uh, makes really good pants. I like those. Um, let's see, AG makes some good jeans. If you're into some, if you want a nice pair of denim, um, Bonobos denim also is pretty good. Uh, I cannot complain there. Um, Lululemon's got some cool athleisure wear. Their ABC jogger stuff is, is nice if you're into that. Uh, Kit and Ace also makes good stuff. I The deal is like, I think most, you know, if I was trying to pick out a wardrobe for like most guys, I think I'd focus mostly on the Bonobos and uh, uh, to like get outfitted for like normal daily wear sort of stuff and like wearing to work. That's what I would do. But for athleisure wear, Lululemon's good for like more casual stuff. Uh, uh, you, you know, Kitten Ace works pretty well too, but yeah, I'd probably, I do like Bonobos quite a bit. AG, AG makes great denim too. Yeah. Lucky, Lucky Brand actually works too if you're trying to buy off the rack. And then Levi's, uh, it's the five, what is it? 541, 501. I forget that they're okay. They're okay. They're not as good as Bonobos, but you know, you can find them on the rack. Ashley Cola, can your body become adapted to the type of cardio you do? I train in a garage gym with only a rower. I've been using barbell medicine for a year now and solely been using the rower for GPP. Am I still benefiting? Well, that's cool. You've been doing barbell medicine stuff for a year. That's awesome. Uh, yes, you get used to the conditioning that you're doing, uh, but basically it just allows you to become more efficient at that exercise. So like if you're using it for like high intensity interval training, well, now your intervals should be either faster uh, you know, you're, but you, the relative intensity may not change and you're still getting a big benefit from there. Um, and for your, you know, slow intensity, steady state stuff, you're probably just rowing further now, um, because you're, you're getting better at the movement. Um, yeah, your, your, your motor patterns are more coordinated. You're more efficient at the exercise, but you're still getting a benefit from it, from doing it for sure. George 96, could you explain your stance on squat depth, i.e. why not squat to lower than just below 90 degrees? Uh, sure. There's no increased motor unit recruitment below pair, like, you know, more than a, just a little bit below parallel. Um, that being said, I don't care if you squat lower than that. I really don't. If you want to squat, you know, to where your butt touches your calves and you can do that without flexing your lumbar spine. Like that's cool with me. I don't think it's a very efficient way to get strong. If you're going to test your squat in the classical sense, like 
you know, at a powerlifting meet. But if you're not, if you don't care about what's the absolute weight on the bar, then I don't think it matters. Um, as long as, you know, you still adhere to good programming principles, but there's no benefit to going, you know, below, you know, way below parallel, like unless you're getting tested in that task. So if you're not getting tested at any task, then you can really squat however you want to. It's just pretty decent evidence that going to just below parallel is kind of like a nice compromise between, you know, glute, quad, adductor and hamstring sort of recruitment. So from a training economy standpoint, that would be useful. On the other hand, if you're like a sprinter, I don't know that all of your squats would be below parallel. Some of them would be quarter squats and half squats because that's more specific to your, the task that you're actually training for. So how important is ingestion of magnesium as an electrolyte as part of intra-electrolyte beverage? Not important. Intra-workout electrolyte supplementation is not important, period, exclamation point. Yeah, just not good evidence that that reliably does anything. And uh, the biggest thing that we have on drinking or consuming stuff in the middle of a workout is you should consume liquids at, you know, as you want to. So don't force feed yourself fluids and don't restrict fluids artificially. Just if you're thirsty, drink. If not, don't drink. Um, and people make a big deal. Well, you won't, you won't know uh, that you're thirsty until it's too late. It's like too late for what? Like <laughs> your performance is going to drop independent of volume status. So I'm not worried about your volume status, you know, how much fluid you have on you. Um, as far, as far as it pertains to performance outside of if you're force drinking, that's going to make you're likely to do worse. And if you are restricting, you're likely to do worse, but I'm not worried about like, Oh, we got to preemptively, you know, be up on fluids. I don't think that's, you know, it's not evidence-based. It's, that's faith-based. Can someone with kidney disease safely take creatine since Austin said it's not harmful and only used as a biomarker of kidney function? Hopefully that's not what you took away from what we've said about creatine. So creatinine is used as a biomarker for kidney function. As far as can People with kidney disease use dietary creatine as a supplement because creatine is filtered and secreted by the kidney. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I that I know having researched this that there's not any direct evidence looking at this. It might be reasonably safe, but also may there's some probably some potential risk there. I don't know that I have enough sort of knowledge in like the natural course of chronic kidney disease to really comment on that. But I don't know that I would actually say that it's safe. Yeah. I don't know that it's harmful either. Thoughts on creatine and hair loss. So no studies, uh, linking creatine and hair loss. There was two, two studies, I believe linking creatine and increases in DHEA, which is a hormone that affects the hair follicle it's assumed that high levels of DHEA causes male pattern baldness, although what they found is that DHEA levels are all, are, are all over the place during the day and day-to-day -day they vary, just like testosterone. Um, they don't vary the same way that testosterone does, meaning that when testosterone goes up, DHEA goes up. I'm not saying that they're linked like that, but they do vary throughout the day and from day-to-day. 
DHEA levels also correspond to different DHEA receptor set, uh, densities. And so we're not sure that an increase in DHEA actually is associated with male pattern, pattern baldness. So as of right now, I don't think that creatine is connected to male pattern baldness. Is there any convincing evidence on blood flow restriction for power outcomes? Power? No. How would one initiate a conversation about good nutrition with someone who is an exceptionally avid keto follower, a follower to the point of not being willing to listen to other people's points of view? I think you just answered your own question. I don't think that we should spend our time debating stuff with people who will not change their mind. It's a waste of time. Just ask them if they're willing to discuss something and if they're open to changing their mind. If not, then just go on living your life. There are other people who want to hear what you have to say and spend your time talking to them. I have a great coach to help with my lifts in person, but his ideology clashes with a lot of barbell medicines. What do he has a 2080 pound total at 260? I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. I think it, uh, 2080. I wonder what that puts them on the all time list. Yeah. It's a good total. I don't know, man. I know a lot of people who are great lifters who are not great coaches, but if you feel like he's helping, that's good. But I stand by our programming, uh, methodology and be happy to publicly debate about them. Do you think early intermediates should spend time on hypertrophy blocks or just rely on enough volume with progressive overload in strength blocks for hypertrophy? I think that using the term early intermediate, I think we should get away from that. We should just talk about beginners and then, you know, not beginners or novices and post novices. I think that any good strength program should have a good element of hypertrophy work on it, considering the link between lean body mass and uh, strength performance. I don't know if doing hypertrophy only blocks is the best way to do that if you're actually like really concerned with strength outcomes, but it would, you could do them, you know, it wouldn't be the worst idea either. I mean, I think if, uh, for most folks who really care about strength outcomes on like the squat, the bench, the deadlift, they need to see them, you know, fairly regularly. And, uh, if it's a hypertrophy biased block, then maybe you, um, have more volume work at, uh, with less fatiguing, you know, lifts during that block. During Austin's lecture on sarcopenia, he mentioned that occupational activity does not seem to provide the same benefits as leisure exercise. And it's not fully understand understood. Why, why is that? Why is it not understood? Or I'm not sure what you're asking because we just don't know why activities at work don't tend to portent or tend to cause the same beneficial adaptations as exercise does. You know, it could be all sorts of things from actual intensity and volume and range of motion and, you know, all sorts of things. But yeah, like he said in the lecture, we're not sure why. Is it a goal of barbell medicine to be the bridge builders from current medical practice to strength and conditioning training? Uh, I mean, 
our role right now is to be, yeah, sort of a conduit from modern medicine to strength conditioning and vice versa. So I don't know that there's a bridge that needs to be built. You don't necessarily want strength. I, there's, there's separate entities, but they need to talk to each other. And, you know, I think that there is some resistance to doing that, but we'll, uh, we'll try to br break down some walls. How specific is a parallel grip bench press compared to a competition bench? It's not that specific because the range of motion is, while the range of motion is about the same, the contraction type and contraction velocity are about the same. The joint angles are different. Um, that makes it a pretty big, I mean, you know, there's some carryover, but I would not put it very high on my list of like, very specific exercises. Do you believe in magic? Yeah, that was the other, if you're still listening, hey, thanks for tuning in. But uh, we talked about book recommendations earlier. Do you believe in magic is the other Dr. Paul Offit book that I would recommend. Let's see. Adam Lapierre asks, do we need to have a 405 deadlift, 315 squat, and 225 bench before we move on from novice LP to the bridge? Uh, no. I think those are just arbitrary numbers pulled out of nowhere with no, <laughs> you know, uh, no background, no, no evidence to support them. I mean, if you're squatting 315 for three sets of five on LP, you're squatting more than Austin Baraki did. That being said, Austin Baraki has squatted 620 at, at 200 pounds, you know, in knee sleeves, which is more than anybody who's finished novice who's been on LP, you know, ever. So, um, I just, the point, if the point isn't that it's a bad program, novice LP, it's just like, Hey, once it stops working, just move on. Just Go on living your life. You don't get a gold star for running LP for a long period of time. I see people on LP for months and months and months, and I'm just like, look, man, you're not doing the program. You you might be paying somebody to tell you to like add a little bit of weight, like that, and they might be having you on LP. But that's that's badness, general badness. Would not recommend. What's up, Dylan? How you doing? Let's see, Chris List. I don't want to ask dumb questions, but where can I find resources for questions that have already been answered? Well, we have a website, marblemedicine.com. We've got a newsletter that you should sign up for if you're not a member of that. Get you, get you all those hot takes delivered right to your email inbox. We have a YouTube channel. You can check out our stuff. And uh, if you like have a question and then you Google that with like my name or Austin's name after it, you'll probably find something. Jordan, you're a legend, dude. Out. Hey, cheers. Thanks, man. Uh, let's see. I am a med student from Vienna, and a lot of my professors say that high protein intake, especially protein supplements, lead to kidney damage in the long run. Is there any evidence for that? No. In fact, there's not. There's only evidence to the contrary. So it is interesting that they say that. Um, one thing you see when you look at protein ingestion and studies on the kidneys, you see an adaptive hyperfiltration. Um, 
So if you, anytime that you eat dietary protein, even if it's a lot or a little, any dietary protein intake, one of the things that happens is that blood flow to the kidney also increases. And this is meant to be an adaptive mechanism by which you can increase your reabsorption of protein that's entered your bloodstream to make sure that it's not going anywhere except for to your muscle tissues. And then also any metabolic byproducts from protein metabolism get excreted. That's why this happens. So some short-term studies show that this hyperfiltration occurs after, like directly after you eat protein and it gets into the bloodstream. But there's no evidence suggesting that that leads to increased incidence of chronic kidney disease, increased incidence of or increased rate of progression in chronic kidney disease from like, you know, stage three, stage five, for instance, none of that stuff exists. So squats, strict press, deadlifts, weighted pull-ups, all in one session too much. No, sounds like a reasonable session to me. Let's see, Jordan, I'm in the power building group programming and have a question pertaining to the AMRAP work for upper back, arms. Do you drop weight if I'm not hitting reps over five as I fatigue? Yeah. I mean, that's one way to do it. It just depends on what exercise you're talking about. If you're talking about chin-ups or pull-ups, I mean, I probably wouldn't. But for arm work, I mean, yeah, I would. I would do more than sets. More reps than – I would like higher reps than five per set. Uh, let's see. Does resistance training increase your blood pressure not only while training but generally because of adaptation, etc.? Uh, so this is actually a good question. All exercises – all exercise raises blood pressure. All exercise raises blood pressure while you are doing the exercise. All of that, that always happens. And I very rarely say always or never, but that's true. All exercise raises blood pressure. Um, resistance training raises blood pressure more than purely dynamic exercise like running, cycling, stuff like that, but less so in general than isometric lifting, like a hand grip test. Isometric uh, exercise tends to be the to raise blood pressure the most in any event. And then resistance training is usually a combination of dynamic and isometric. That's why it's somewhere in the middle. All exercise raises blood pressure while you're exercising. The evidence on resistance training as far as blood pressure goes suggests that it does not increase resting blood pressure. In fact, when they, it was 100 and so it's 391 studies total, half of them on exercise, half of them on blood pressure control, blood pressure medications. This is by NACI et al. This was published last year suggested that resistance training uh, or or aerobic exercise or combined exercise tended to lower blood pressure in hypertensives more than the blood pressure medication. And again, there are no studies suggesting that resistance training increases resting blood pressure. So there you go. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the content. We've got another podcast coming out on Friday with Austin and I talking about coaching. Head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us out and we'll catch you guys next time. See you.